This is The Guardian. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics, and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. The Eurocentric Fallacy The Myths That Underpin European Identity by Hans Gunnani Many pro-Europeans, that is, supporters of European integration or the European project in its current form, imagine that the European Union is an expression of cosmopolitanism. They think it stands for diversity, inclusion and openness. It opposes nationalism and racism. It is about people coming together and peacefully cooperating. It is a shining example of how enemies can become partners and how diversity can be reconciled with unity. As the European Commission President, José Manuel Barroso, put it, when the EU was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2012, as it struggled to deal with the Eurozone crisis, the European project has shown that it is possible for peoples and nations to come together across borders, and that it is possible to overcome the differences between them and us. However, there is something rather Eurocentric in thinking of the EU in this way. In particular, by generalising about peoples and nations in the way Barroso does, it mistakes Europe for the world. After all, insofar as the European project that is, the process of European integration since the end of the Second World War, has brought people and nations together. It is, of course, only peoples and nations within Europe. It was a process that began with six Western European countries in the immediate post-war period and subsequently widened to include other Northern, Western and Southern European countries and, after the end of the Cold War, Central and Eastern European countries. It has never included the rest of the world, but of course, the EU has developed policies towards it. Although internal barriers to the free movement of capital, goods and people have been progressively removed in the last 75 years, external barriers have persisted. In particular, while many barriers to flows of capital and goods from outside the EU have been removed, barriers to the movement of people have remained. The European tendency to mistake Europe for the world, what might be called the Eurocentric fallacy, has obscured our understanding of the EU and its role in the world. 
It has led to an idealization of European integration as a kind of cosmopolitan project, what I call the myth of cosmopolitan Europe. A better way to understand the EU is an expression of regionalism, which is analogous to nationalism, rather than the opposite of it, as many pro-Europeans imagine it to be. Thinking of the EU in terms of regionalism rather than cosmopolitanism also allows us to understand more clearly the tensions within the European project. My father was Indian and my mother is Dutch, and I was born and grew up in the UK. My personal relationship with European identity and with the European Union has therefore been shaped by the influence of an upbringing in a country on the geographical periphery of Europe, with a notoriously semi-detached relationship to it. In addition to my British identity, there's a secondary sense of belonging to one country that is an EU member state, one of the original six, and to another that is outside Europe and the EU, but was colonised by Britain. This has meant that although I have always felt European to some extent, I did not feel 100% European, as I have heard some other people proudly describe themselves. While the idea of being European captured part of my identity, it could never capture all of it. In 2009, I began working at the European Council on Foreign Relations, ECFR, a European foreign policy think tank with offices in seven European capital cities. At the time, I considered myself a pro-European, that is, someone who supports European integration or the European project in its current form. I assumed that the EU was a force for good, both internally within Europe and in the world beyond. But as I learned much more about the EU during the six years that I worked at ECFR, I began to feel that much of what I had previously thought I knew about its history was actually myth, the product of a kind of self-idealization of the EU. At the same time as my own perceptions of the EU were changing, it was itself changing, especially after the Eurozone crisis began around 2010. I became more critical of the EU and found it harder to continue to identify with it. My aim is to try to persuade Europeans that a different Europe from the one we currently have is needed. Though since I am a British citizen and the UK has now left the EU, I should perhaps say they rather than we. Although the EU is not a global project as such, some European thinkers, such as Jürgen Habermas, have argued that it can nevertheless be understood as a cosmopolitan project. Habermas argues that globalization led to a debordering of economy, society and culture, and ended the historical period centred on the nation-state that controlled its own territory, and in doing so hollowed out democracy. The EU is, or ought to be, a way to regain the ability to regulate markets and pursue redistributive policies now that the nation-state is no longer able to do so. But the idea of a cosmopolitan Europe suggests that, rather than re-bordering and re-establishing the territorial principle at a higher level, the EU might transcend it. Habermas argues that the EU can function as a kind of basis for, or step towards, the transformation of international politics into domestic politics. In other words, a precursor to a world society. 
Many supporters of European integration believe that it has already transformed international politics within Europe into domestic politics. Yet the idea of a cosmopolitan Europe goes further. Elsewhere, Habermas writes that the EU is an important stage along the route towards a politically constituted world society. Thus, the EU can restore the power of the state over markets not just on behalf of Europeans, but for the whole of humanity, with the cosmopolitan goal of creating the conditions necessary for a global domestic policy. Instead of thinking of the EU as an expression of cosmopolitanism, it is more accurate and helpful to think of it as an expression of regionalism. Regionalism is similar to nationalism, but on a larger continental scale. Think about what it means to say, "I am European." When you do so, you are not saying that you are a citizen of the world, let alone a citizen of nowhere, as British Prime Minister Theresa May implied in a speech at the Conservative Party conference in 2016. Rather, you are saying that you are a citizen of a particular region, and one that has a particular history and relationship with the rest of the world. Thus, although pro-Europeans tend to think of European identity as being inclusive, it is in another sense exclusive. It is internally inclusive. It is able to include multiple European national identities, and in that sense, becomes more inclusive than they are. This is why people whose families cross national boundaries within Europe are often most attracted to the idea of thinking of themselves as being European. At the same time, however, European identity is externally exclusive. That is, it excludes those who are not European or cannot think of themselves as being European. Thinking of European identity as a kind of regionalism allows us to think more clearly about its different versions through history, in a similar way to how we distinguish between different kinds of nationalism. In particular, in an influential early study of nationalism. Hans Kohn distinguished between civic nationalism, an inclusive nationalism based on the voluntary commitment of a group of people to liberal principles as the basis for a shared sense of citizenship, and ethnic nationalism, a more exclusive form of nationalism based on a shared ethnicity, language, or region. In reality, American, British, French, and German nationalisms all have civic and cultural elements. All forms of nationalism are, to some extent, exclusive. They cannot be open to the entire population of the world. Often, the differences between them are less about the degree to which they exclude others, and more about who exactly they exclude and on what basis. They can be inclusive towards some and exclusive towards others. Moreover, almost all forms of nationalism, even those that are seen as paradigmatic examples of civic nationalism. Define themselves, at least to some extent, in ethnic or cultural terms. In the long, complex history of the idea of Europe, it has had both civic and cultural elements. Like national identities in Europe, modern European identity emerged out of the Enlightenment, producing a racialized, rationalist identity that included both cultural and civic elements. After the Second World War. A new, more civic identity emerged, at least among elites, which was centered on what was to become the EU. 
But as these elites sought to give the European project legitimacy and pathos, they constantly drew on the earlier, more cultural version of identity. And even now, the civic and ethnic cultural versions of European regionalism are elided. Thanks for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Hello, I'm Grace Ben. I'm back and I've been busy. Comfort Eating, our award-winning podcast, is out now. With an exciting lineup, including Shirley Ballas, Bridget Christie, Jamie Demetrio, and many more. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day... What would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audiolongread. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Another influential way of understanding nations, based on the work of political scientist Benedict Anderson, is as imagined communities. Nationalism functions to make nations seem natural, that is, as if they had always existed. But in reality, they are socially constructed. Anderson argues that nationalism emerged first in the Creole societies of the Americas, Brazil, the US and the former colonies of Spain, and then in Europe, in the context of modernity and the Enlightenment. From the 17th century onwards, as religious certainties dissipated, monarchs lost the automatic legitimacy they had previously had, and conceptions of time changed. There was a need for a new sense of belonging to replace sacred imagined communities. That is, in the case of Europe, to replace the imagined community of Christendom. 
For Anderson, the decisive factor in the emergence of nationalism was what he calls print capitalism. The mass production and commodification of books and newspapers made possible by the printing press, which made it possible for rapidly growing numbers of people to think about themselves and to relate themselves to others in profoundly new ways. In particular, as the market for readers of books in Latin, which had been the lingua franca of Europe's religious elites, was quickly saturated, publishers began producing books in vernacular national print languages which in turn had the effect of standardizing these languages. This enabled the nation to play the role of earlier religious identities in transforming contingency into meaning. It is the magic of nations to turn chance into destiny, Anderson writes. Europe can also be understood as an imagined community. Anderson himself says that all communities larger than primordial villages of face-to-face -face contact and perhaps even these, are imagined. But we can perhaps go even further. If imagined communities are in this sense a function of size, Europe as a region may in a sense be even more imagined than European nations. Of course, there are countries such as China and India that have larger population terms than Europe as a whole, but at least compared to European nations, European regionalism is, as it were, one further step removed from a local identity. It is imagined, or to put it another way, mediated, to an even greater extent than individual national identities in Europe. In another sense, however, Europe may be a slightly different kind of imagined community than nations. Anderson specifies that a nation is an imagined political community that is imagined as both inherently limited and sovereign. He writes, the nation is imagined as limited because even the largest of them, encompassing perhaps a billion living human beings, has finite, if elastic, boundaries beyond which lie other nations. The most messianic nationalists do not dream of a day when all members of the human race will join their nation in the way it was possible in certain epochs for, say, Christians to dream of a wholly Christian planet. Europe, on the other hand, is ambiguous about its limits. It is not only that it too has elastic boundaries in the same way as nations do. For example, there has always been an ambiguity about where Europe ends and Asia begins, but also that it imagines itself in a different way than nations, especially around the question of whether its boundaries are finite. As I have already mentioned, Pro-Europeans have sometimes seen the EU as an expansive community that would remake the world in its own image, especially in the two decades after the end of the Cold War. In other words, European regionalism has something of the messianic aspirations that Anderson ascribes to earlier religious identities. But in recent years, the EU has become clearer about its limits. In doing so, pro-European thinking on sovereignty is also changing. Pro-Europeans had traditionally rejected the idea of sovereignty as anachronistic and saw European integration as a way to overcome it. But during the last decade, they have embraced the idea of European sovereignty. In other words, European regionalism may be becoming more like nationalism than it was previously.
At the beginning of the post-war project of European integration, some clearly saw the possibility that a European identity could be analogous to nationalism and even replicate its worst features. The German-American thinker Hannah Arendt, for example, was supportive of European integration. But writing in 1948 in the context of the emerging Cold War rivalry between the US and the Soviet Union, and at a time when there was much discussion of a European federation, she observed, The trouble with many European intellectuals, in this respect, is that now the long-wished-for European federation is a definite possibility. New constellations of world powers make it only too easy to apply their former nationalism to a larger structure and become as narrowly and chauvinistically European as they were formerly German, Italian or French. In other words, Arendt foresaw the possibility of an ethnic or cultural version of identity centred on a united Europe. Few pro-Europeans today, on the other hand, see European identity as being analogous to nationalism in this way. This in turn has to do with the way in which they have tended to demonise national identity in general. Benedict Anderson describes how common it is for progressive cosmopolitan intellectuals to insist on the near-pathological character of nationalism, its roots in fear and hatred of the other, and its affinities with racism. The tendency to view nationalism in this way is particularly strong among pro-Europeans. At best, they see it as an anachronism. At worst, they see it as a dangerous force. As French President François Mitterrand put it in his last speech to the European Parliament in 1995, nationalism is war. However, there is again something Eurocentric about viewing nationalism in this way. It is difficult to square the idea of nationalism as a dark, elemental, unpredictable force of primordial nature threatening the orderly calm of civilised life, as Partha Chatterjee puts it, with the experience of anti-colonial nationalism such as that in India at the time of its independence struggle. Seeing nationalism in purely negative terms obscures what Chatterjee calls its emancipatory aspects. By exaggerating the differences between nationalism and regionalism, Europeans, and especially Germans, who tend to see the history of the nation-state through the prism of their own experience with it, have also created a blind spot around the possibility that European regionalism could resemble European nationalisms. A good example of this blind spot is the way in which the EU responded to the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020. At the beginning of March, as the virus swept through Europe, with Italy hit particularly badly, France and Germany imposed restrictions on the export of personal protective equipment, PPE. This was generally seen by pro-Europeans as dangerous nationalism. A week later, when these restrictions were lifted and the EU itself restricted the export of PPE beyond Europe, it was seen as a triumph of European unity. We need to help each other, the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, said. But there seemed to be little awareness among pro-Europeans that the EU had done precisely what they had criticised member states for, except at a regional level, and with potentially even worse consequences for the world. Similarly, when Germany took over the six-month presidency of the EU in 2020, it chose the slogan, Making Europe Strong Again Together. 
The German government had therefore adopted the Trump administration's slogan of Make America Great Again. But, because it now applied to a region rather than a nation, imagined that this would transform its meaning into the opposite of that signified by Trump. Wolfgang Eisinger, a former German diplomat and passionate pro-European, could not see the problem with the slogan. Germany advocating a strong EU is the exact opposite of promoting or glorifying nationalism, he tweeted. In other words, far-right tropes were apparently not a problem or magically ceased to be far-right tropes when adopted by Europe as a region rather than by nation-states. In order to go further in understanding the similarities and differences between European nationalisms and European regionalism, and thus to think about exactly what kind of imagined community Europe is, it is necessary to examine in more detail the process of identity formation in each case. But in doing so, it is important to distinguish myths about national and regional identities, that is, simplifying and comforting stories that are themselves the product of nationalism or regionalism from more critical accounts of identity formation. Because pro-Europeans themselves believe in the importance of strengthening European identity, their attempts to create a narrative for the EU often mythologize it in order to create a usable past rather than deepen our understanding of it. In particular, there is a tendency to think of European identity formation on the basis of an idealized and simplistic view of its history. Europe is often imagined as a closed system. In other words, as a region that has its own self-contained history separate from that of other regions. This reduces European history to a linear story, going from ancient Greece and Rome through Christianity, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment and finally to the EU. It erases the deep interconnections with other histories, both the multiple external influences on Europe, particularly from Africa and the Middle East, the presence of non-Europe within Europe, and the interactions of Europeans with the rest of the world beyond the contested and shifting geographical boundaries of Europe, that is, the presence of Europe within non-Europe. In terms of identity formation, thinking of Europe as a closed system in this way obscures the role of constitutive outsiders, that is, the others against whom an identity is defined. The Jamaican-British cultural theorist Stuart Hall writes that identities are constructed through difference. They are what they are because of all the things they are not, because of what they lack. This is especially true for Europe, which has constantly at different times in different ways and in relation to different others tried to establish what it is, its identity, by symbolically marking its difference from them. European identity and the wider idea of the West were shaped not just by the internal processes that gradually moulded Western European countries into a distinct form of society, but also through Europe's sense of difference from other worlds, how it came to represent itself in relation to these others. In this sense, European identity was formed in a similar way to national identities in Europe, against others. Yet national identities in Europe were defined to a large extent in opposition to each other. In other words, their others were other Europeans. For example, Britishness was from the 18th century onwards defined in opposition to external enemies and above all, France. 
The overwhelming Catholicism of large parts of continental Europe, and especially of France and Spain, provided a newly invented Britain with a formidable other, against which it could usefully define itself. The historian Linda Colley has written. Similarly, from the 19th century onwards, German nationalism was also defined against France. After 1848 especially, German identity was defined in terms of an idea of German Kultur that was contrasted with French civilisation. In contrast, European identity formed in opposition to multiple non-European others, the relative importance of which changed over time. During the medieval period, when Europe was largely synonymous with Christianity, Jews were its primary internal other, and Islam was its primary external other. From the Enlightenment onwards, and especially in the colonial era, non-white people around the world became Europe's constitutive outsiders. In the 20th century, Europe was increasingly defined against and seen as being in competition with Russia and the US. The post-war idea of Europe centred on the EU did not break with this history of othering as cleanly as many pro-Europeans would like to think. Pro-Europeans think of Europe as being different than a nation, or even its opposite, but often talk about it in very similar ways to nationalists talking about the nation. A good example is the idea of Europe as a Schicksalsgemeinschaft, or community of fate. The concept is usually seen as problematic when used in a national context, especially in Germany. In particular, it is seen as suggesting an atavistic or pre-political idea of the nation. Yet the term is often applied to the EU by pro-Europeans, who seem to see it as entirely unproblematic when applied at the regional rather than the national level. For example, the French philosopher Edgar Morin wrote in 1990 that Europeans had become conscious of their common destiny since 1945 and had now arrived at the moment of the community of fate. As Europeans have felt increasingly threatened, particularly since the beginning of the war in Ukraine, it has further strengthened the sense of the EU as a community of fate. The cultural element of European regionalism did not simply disappear after 1945, as many pro-Europeans liked to believe. Rather, it continued in a more subtle form and informed the post-war European project which did not create a new purely civic regionalism. Rather than European regionalism in general, it is this cultural element of European regionalism, particularly the post-Second World War version of it, centred on the EU, that we might call Euro-whiteness. Thanks again for listening to The Guardian Long Read. That was The Eurocentric Fallacy, The Myths That Underpin European Identity by Hans Gunnani. Read by Mikhail Sen and produced by Joshan Chana. The executive producer was Ellie Bury. This is an edited extract from Euro-Whiteness, Culture, Empire and Race in the European Project, published by Hearst and available at guardianbookshop.com. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read.
This is The Guardian. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 